the key change on the Chinese side is that their military capabilities have advanced so much that the use of force to compel unification, while not yet viable, is becoming more viable. Should an incident occur during a freedom of navigation operation, tensions can ratchet up very quickly. And because we are living in this current environment where both sides are in competition mode and inclined towards zero-sum thinking, tendency will be to perceive hostile motives on the other side. I don't think that conflict is inevitable at all. I think it's constructive for decision makers to keep that in mind on both sides. It's not inevitable. But if we look at the risks in the short to medium term, they exist. My guest today is Amanda Zhao, who is the Senior Analyst for China at the International Crisis Group. She focuses on conflicts in which China plays an important role in developments in China's foreign policy that relate to conflict prevention and resolution. Prior to Crisis Group, Amanda established and managed the Center for Humanitarian Dialogues China program in Beijing, overseeing projects related to South China Sea, US-China relations, and China's evolving approach to conflict mediation. Before that, Amanda was a field researcher on the conflicts in Sudan and South Sudan for the Enough Project. Amanda has degrees from Pomona College and the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. She joins me today for a deep dive on the increasing tensions between Washington and Beijing. Amanda, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Thank you so much for having me on. So before we dive into the uh, undoubtedly dense subject of China and perspectives from China, maybe you can find out a little bit uh, more about you. How did you end up in the world of conflict initially and, and what motivated your extensive career? That's a great question. It's forcing me to reflect <laughs> back. You know, some of these things, decisions, as you know, around careers aren't necessarily so well thought out. Mm. You know, I think in university, I was particularly interested in African politics. And so that led me to studying abroad in Africa. And then, you know, I got lucky and I, I got a, a research position at a think tank in D.C. that focused on uh, conflicts in Africa. And specifically, I started working on the Sudans and mm. had a chance to be based there, actually, for a couple of years. And so that that really was what started it. And, you know, I had I had no intention of working on Asia at all, actually. But then life happened and I, I started working on Asia following grad school. So, yeah, that's that's how I got my start. But, but you're a Mandarin speaker, is that right? I think I saw that uh, somewhere on one of your profiles. Yeah, no, no. I, I, so I, was, I was born in Taipei and, and I grew up in the U.S. And yeah, I'm a Mandarin speaker, you know, was one of those kids that took Chinese school every Saturday, uh, you know, all about, you know, preserving that heritage and all of that. Um, but, oh, but oh that's all familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the diaspora community is particularly focused on that. But you know, it just never really crossed my mind, to be honest, that I would be working on China. Um, it was just such a sort of intimidating field. So it was unaccepted. Yeah. But I, I suspect your uh, cultural understanding of nuance and probably history is undoubtedly an asset when it comes to your analysis. I hope so. Definitely the cultural nuances. I, you know, when I was in Beijing, I was sort of extremely sensitive to, to, to that and just personal 
uh, interactions. And I think by virtue of sort of looking Chinese and, and speaking Chinese sort of well enough, I think I might have gotten a, a slightly less varnished interactions from Chinese mm. interlocutors. You know, yeah. I think there was less of a feeling on their side that they had to sort of perform or sort of, you know, signal a certain posture because it was before a, a sort of Western audience. I think there was a, mm. perhaps I, I'd like to think they were slightly more direct with me. Of course. I mean, that's a, I guess you're speaking the same language metaphorically and, and literally. I wonder, has it ever worked against you, especially given that you were born in Taipei? So has that cultural link ever worked against you in your analysis, particularly from the Chinese side? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, my, my family is from the mainland and then went over to Taiwan. You know, I think there is an expectation sometimes that if you're of Chinese heritage, that you are more sympathetic to mm. China's positions and that you should automatically understand, right? So, so there's a little bit of that. But of course, there was always this sort of awkward moment at the beginning of, of introductions where, you know, they'll ask, where are you from? And, mm. you know, I tended to sort of mix it all up. You know, I was by my family. I'm yeah. born in Taipei. I grew up in the U.S., but I've lived all, all over the world. So please just accept me as a global citizen. But that never yeah. quite worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, in fact, I think I have that as my as my tagline on LinkedIn, you know, global citizen. But uh, oftentimes people just laugh. But, but, but that's really how I see it because I've lived so many different identities in many ways and uh, that really resonates with me but I can also see why it wouldn't necessarily land too well with the people that you're uh, dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Exactly. That, that's kind of an interesting uh, a pivot I guess uh, because you're, very, you're so closely tapped into the current, I don't want to call it crisis because it's not necessarily that and maybe that's a, that, that's a loaded term but maybe I'll ask you first, what is the current state of affairs? between China, and I'm going to use US in the first instance, uh, because of course, Taiwan will come into that. But given what we know of the global competition between China and the US, maybe that's an interesting point to start. So so what is the current state of affairs uh, between the emerging and the and the hegemon? <laughs> I like that. Um, you know, the relationship has really settled into an openly competitive and confrontational relationship in which decision makers on both sides are more risk tolerant and they see the introduction of friction as actually necessary for achieving Mm. their national objectives. So the competition is increasingly ideological. I think that's another piece of it. It's partly seen as a rivalry of the two domestic systems which system can perform better, and increasingly about divergent visions of what the world order should be. And the fact that both sides are now increasingly understanding this contest through an ideological lens essentially increases the likelihood that either side will perceive some sort of unintended military collision or spike in tensions around a long-standing dispute as a high-stakes event that really tests, you know, the credibility and the resolve of each side, which mm. effectively makes conflict management more difficult, right, mm. when you attach such high stakes. Mm. So, you know, just to get into the details slightly, right, we've seen that under the Biden administration, there's been a real push to demonstrate that democracies work, 
especially following the Trump years. And there is this rhetoric that has been repeated multiple times that Biden sees this current moment as a battle between democracies and autocracies over the shape of the future world order. These are incredibly high stakes, right? Mm. When you when you think of it in that sense. And, you know, the U.S. now assesses that China not only has the capabilities to reshape the international order, but that they have the intention of reshaping the international order. But then on, you know, on China's side, I think there was a lot of hope at the beginning of the Biden administration that there would be a shift towards, if not an altogether friendly relationship, but there was an expectation that tensions would reduce. Oh, and, you know, that tariffs would be lifted and, you know, tariffs are still in place, things like that. Mm. And Beijing really sees Washington's emphasis on the ideological component of the competition as really a condemnation of their own political system. And as Washington trying to really undermine the Chinese Communist Party's and the Chinese system's moral authority, sort of globally, their mm. legitimacy and their moral authority. So, you know, when Washington criticizes Beijing for Xinjiang, for Hong Kong, for Taiwan, it's really reinforcing a lot of these longstanding anxieties that Beijing has, that external forces are attempting to change China's political system mm. and to bring down the Communist Party, right? And so... It's stirring a lot of those anxieties on Beijing's side. And so for Beijing, you know, I think we've seen them more openly embrace the fact that there is a competition. They don't like to say that because they think that fuels competition by Mm. openly declaring it. But I think we've seen that they are, you know, they, they are increasingly open about it. And they do also see that it is about proving that their political system is more effective. Hmm. So what, what I'm hearing you say, and the first thing I, I just want to pick up on there, that there was a number of really interesting points you made. The first one was that, that these tensions are necessary or that they both view these tensions as necessary. Why necessary? You'll hear the sentiment, I think, from both sides that at least the mili- military piece of it is there needs to be a military component to our policy because without it, and specifically here I'm referring to military presence operations uh, within the First Island chain, increasing military buildup by both sides, there is a conviction, I think, amongst many that without that piece, the other side won't take your rhetoric, your position, your stated commitments seriously. I think this has become sort of very much accepted on both sides. Mm. You need the military piece, right? How many times have I heard this sort of from both sides? And I think particular to Washington, because I think, you know, I think on Beijing's side, the idea that they're in a struggle with the U.S. has been there for some time. But under Xi Jinping, I think that is an element that has grown more explicit, and you see more people saying it. Mm. On Washington's side, though, there's been a shift, right? There's been a fundamental shift in how Washington is managing its relationship with China. And that's based on the belief that the policy of engagement, of pursuing trade relations with China, that 
such a policy would lead to domestic political reform in Beijing, I think is, to put it lightly, no longer in vogue. Mm, (laughs) So, mm, 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 uh, mm. you know, the mainstream view now is that didn't work. And the response has been almost uh, all the way to the other end, which is that, okay, so we, we need to introduce more friction. We need to embrace the competitive elements of this relationship. We now are faced with a China that is not only militarily capable, but a China that we see as fundamentally aggressive, right? And so that, I think, are the sort of key pieces that drive the view in Washington that friction is necessary. Right. That's really interesting because the way I see that then is that you're you're effectively increasing potentially the threat for your own domestic audience and even in your own mind in order to then have something to build against, right? To In order to develop your military, to increase your budgets, increase your spending, uh, sharpen the commitment, clarify the purpose, the vision, the mission that you're to follow. But if both sides are doing that, and they're doing that kind of in a vacuum for their own domestic audiences, doesn't that ultimately contribute to the kind of classic security dilemma where perceptions, action, reaction, action, reaction, you know, I'm perceiving China to become more aggressive and that's the narrative I'm building uh, to strengthen my own position and my own deterrent. And China's doing the same, perceiving me as growing more aggressive, more threatening, increasing my military capabilities. Isn't that uh, sort of called it a self-licking ice cream? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what's happening uh, right now. And it's partly, as you allude to, about mobilizing the respective bureaucracies, right? There's a mm. there's an element of that. But I think there is also this conviction that this is the most effective way of signaling to the other side. But as mm. you say, that signal, we, we know sort of the theory around deterrence is that you not only need to deter, but you need to assure as well, mm. right? Mm. And so I think that, which we can discuss a bit more later, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is sort of the piece that where there might be some improvements or some additional thinking is required. So it's clear that both sides are pursuing the military piece of it. um, And it's clear that both sides are focused on military deterrence. But but what about the other pieces of the strategy? Mm, mm, mm -hmm. What brought this along? Because there was quite a, I mean, the the status quo seems to be upset, or there's certainly turbulences. And those turbulences, depending on which side of the world you're looking at it from, they're very much turning into tremors, potentially. Why the change? And what's, what triggered it, I guess? I think much of it does have to do with, you know, as I said, it's not just about Chinese capabilities. Clearly, Chinese capabilities, military capabilities have increased significantly. Their economic influence and leverage has increased tremendously. So Chinese hard power has grown, clearly. But it's that combined with the West's reading of Chinese intentions, I think, that has caused a shift in thinking. The data points that is generally used to identify Chinese intentions, because here uh, I feel obliged to say that, and I think any other sort of China watcher would agree, (laughs) determining Chinese intention is not uh, a particularly easy task. You know, there's Mm. a, a lot of sort of reading of 
party official rhetoric and sort of parsing through the language, shifts mm. in the language, little changes in words here and there. And then, you know, somehow that's supposed to reveal intention. And of course, we all know the limits of that, right? Yeah, but, um, yeah. That's like saying, you know, I can I can understand Washington's intentions purely from reading like the national security strategy mm. or something, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, it'll get you it'll get you to a point, but it certainly doesn't reveal the whole mm. picture, right? So that's just to sort of qualify really any sort of analysis about Chinese intentions. But, but you know, the, the data points we have are not few. Right? Mm, so mm. the data points include Chinese militarization of islands, outposts in the South China Sea that they control, a sort of revisionist reading of UNCLOS in its claims around the South China Sea, its actions along the border that it is in dispute with India, its use of gray zone coercion around the Senkaku Delu Islands, uh, its actions internally as well are sort of suggestive that Beijing right now under Xi Jinping is no longer in this era of, you know, hide your strength, hide your capabilities, bide your time which was the mantra under Deng Xiaoping. Hmm. But what we are faced with now is a much more assertive, a much more ambitious, unapologetically so, Beijing, that is very much intent on securing the, the sort of phrase they like to use is sort of actively shaping the external environment to their favor. Mm. Uh, and so it has been more than active. It has been extremely proactive, extremely assertive. And so those are the sort of data points that suggest, I think, to most analysts and to myself that, you know, this is a China uh, whose intentions might well be aggressive if allowed to do so, if allowed to push for its ultimate sort of objectives, if not kept in check by uh, the rest of the international community. Yeah, so I think that is a sort of the realization that we are facing a different China is the trigger. Uh, it's not the only trigger. We shouldn't uh, underestimate the power of Trump himself in being a force in the U.S.'s shift on policy towards China. It took a fairly unconventional president to enact such a shift in policy. So that was a key reason as well. And in terms of Beijing, you know, I think a lot, as I mentioned before, I think their attitude towards U.S., the U.S. has always been competitive. Mm, I, mm, I think mm. there's always been an element of that where there's an understanding that China is in this sort of long-term you know, struggle with the U.S. And so that is not necessarily new, but I think it's become more public and it's come, it, it plays a bigger role in attitudes and in shaping perceptions in Beijing now because that competition is more explicit. Yeah. And to what extent is it also to do historically with China's perceived, it's perceived place in the world. And it's often said, you know, the West thinks in, I think, decades and China thinks in centuries. And you're kind of making the point that this is almost the the coming of age or, or returning of China onto the global scene and asserting its dominance post, you know, as it's, again, referred to often as the, the century of humiliation. So to yes. what extent do you think that's also part of the, it's, it's, it's embodied in the narrative that's embodied in the psyche, the Chinese psyche, that this is their 
to use a US term, you know, their manifest destiny is to command this presence on the global stage. Yeah, I think even, you know, historically, under multiple Chinese leaders, the national objective has more or less stayed the same, which is to achieve national rejuvenation of China following uh, the century of humiliation, right? So it's the return of China to the center of the world stage, as they like to call it. And really what national rejuvenation means, which is supposed to occur by 2049, is really for China to become at least as powerful as the U.S., if not more. And the way that the leadership understands the current international environment is that it's facing a world that is undergoing what they like to say major changes unseen in a century, which is basically a transitional period in which they see U.S. unipolar power ending, but a period in which Chinese power or China has not grown strong enough to mm. assume a position as Washington's peer. So it's this sort of transitional period that we're in from the leadership's perspective. And so, uh, you know, going back to this idea of creating a positive external environment, you know, the goal right now, the strategic goal is to sort of extend what they see. So in this period, they see both sort of strategic opportunities, but they see a lot of challenges. So what they're trying to do is to manage this period in a way that you know, exploits those opportunities and manages those challenges. And a key challenge is really U.S. efforts right now mm. to what they see as pressing China's rise, including now under the Biden administration through the formation of anti-China coalitions. Uh, and so this is sort of key right now in them, a key challenge that they have to manage Maybe you can explore that a little more in a bit more detail. What, what, what do you mean by the anti-China coalitions? So, you know, here, I think, particularly under the Biden administration, which has been relatively effective in strengthening the U.S.'s alliances and partnerships with what they like to call like-minded countries. So this would include uh, shoring up of the Quad, the signing of AUKUS, the push for the Indo-Pacific economic framework, having relative success in focusing both NATO and the G7 on the China threat. So these are all uh, activities that Beijing sees as threatening and as activities that exclude China and are really targeted at China. And they're not wrong. Hmm. And I think that's the, that, I guess that's the key there. They're not wrong. But it's very difficult to not to take an objective view and see this as, well, isn't everybody just doing the same thing? Uh, and if we just stand aside as interested bystanders, yeah, I, I just can't see, or, or that's a question to you maybe, do you see this going any other way than a form of a hot conflict that's going to at some point test the other? Because that's ultimately what's going to assert the dominance over the rising power or the up to now still currently the, you know, the hegemon uh, in global affairs. Before I get into that, I just want to touch very quickly on your point about 
Uh, isn't that what everyone is doing, you know, mm. really? Um, and, you know, because this is a, a point that I think is important, you know, back to sort of Chinese intentions and how difficult it is to read. But, you know, I think China has shown itself to have a fundamentally hierarchical view of not only the region, but of the world when in which there are big powers, including itself and the U.S., middle powers than small powers. And there is this view that major powers have always been able to dictate the rules of the game and to get away with violations of the rules of the game when it suited their interests, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so this is something that when U.S. rhetoric focuses on international laws and norms and the rules-based order, the Chinese are incredibly cynical about this concept, you know, without, not without reason. Hmm. And so that's why Beijing has shown itself to be sort of willing to selectively implement those aspects of international laws and norms that suits its interests and to discard those that do not, right? Hmm. Because it sees itself as just doing what other major powers are doing. Yeah. Anyway, so setting that aside... Um, but just to pick up on that, though, because I think it's a, a really yeah. important point, because it, we're talking about the moral high ground here as to who retains the moral high ground in the face of interests prevailing, which I think is always a, a fundamental kind of clash between these values and interests, right? I mean, the democratic world, you know, myself included, projects these kind of values of democracy and freedom and freedom of speech, etc. That's the again, that's the narrative that we that we try to embody. But of course, we know very well that our own national interests. Uh, have overshadowed our own values. And we have breached the, the very global rules order that we're trying to project outwardly, not least in some of the more recent wars that we participated in. Of course, Iraq stands out as a spectacular case of own goal, if you want exactly. to call it that way. Right. But then that begs the question, I mean, is and I've just got to be careful here that I'm not necessarily defending Beijing, but I'm trying to understand sure. Beijing's perspective because they have every right to say, well, hold on a minute. You are being hypocritical. So therefore, the rules-based order that you seek to protect, you only do so when it's in your interest, right? Right. And, I, you know, I think it's it's right to say that the rules-based order that Washington is defending, it's defending not only because of values, but because it's it's in its strategic interests and it helps to ensure American preeminence. In the world, it is the system upon which U.S. legitimacy, moral authority sit, right? Mm. And I think Beijing sees that very clearly. And you know what Beijing is saying, in, in not so persuasive ways, is given our stature in the world now, and given where we will be going forward, mm. we deserve a say mm. in what that system is, right? Mm. And so, you know, if we're talking about like long-term how do you manage this competition between the U.S. and China? So we said, right, there's the sort of military piece of it. But there's also this other piece that I think requires more thinking on all sides, which is how do you accommodate Chinese preferences and interests in the international order? And I don't think that that is actually that controversial to say, Hmm. you know, Senior officials in the Biden administration insist that their ultimate objective is coexistence Hmm. with China, however much the sort of military piece of it would suggest it's not to Hmm. China. Hmm. So, you know, coexistence is sort of accepted by Washington. You know, China is not going anywhere. (laughs) Hmm. And, Hmm. And to add to that, 
there's no signs of changes to their domestic political system. So we're not going to see a democratic China Mm. anytime soon. So given those realities, right, that question of how do you coexist is critical. And it, it very much has to do with One, to what extent is the U.S. and its partners willing to accommodate Chinese interests? But two, what are the processes that would be deemed as legitimate for accommodating those interests? So what's that? There's no institution for this. Is it a Mm. series of bilateral negotiations and reaching some sort of Mm. detente or understanding between Washington and Beijing? You know, what is that? Because Mm. You know, it has to be seen as legitimate. Is it too cynical to say uh, one world, two systems? (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. That's interesting. You know... That, that's exactly the kind of slogan that Beijing would trot out. I wouldn't be shocked. I don't know how, what, what your um, listener is claiming that. your audience. Uh, <laughs> that's trademark. It's said. You know, if there are Chinese senior officials who listen to this podcast, I wouldn't be shocked if it appeared <laughs> next year. <laughs> uh, that's, I mean, I obviously say that in jest, but it strikes me as though, uh, especially given what you're saying, that uh, there is a recognition that we have to coexist lest none of us do kind of thing uh, so it's a it's a absolute necessary realization it's just now finding ways of how we actually do that in the way that's in some sense a win-win rather than a winner takes all which is where, where the where the challenges are and I think that's what you that's what you're alluding to that the military solution is 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 kind of a winner takes all solution. And we need alternatives, right? And not only that, but you know, we, you you started talking about this, the, the potential for a hot war. And so not only is the military piece of it inclined towards zero-sum thinking, but also it creates risks in the short to medium term, you know, very concrete risks, not the sort of you know, theoretical risks. And I don't think that conflict is inevitable at mm. all. I think it's constructive for decision makers to keep that in mind Mm. on both sides. It's not inevitable. But if we look at the risks in the short to medium term, they exist. So here I'm referring to the possibility of just a total misinterpretation of the other side's intentions. So the example that I like to use often is that in the autumn of 2020, Beijing misinterpreted a series of U.S. actions as indicating a possible U.S. plan to attack Chinese outposts Mm. in the South China Sea. Mm. And this was something that I think any sort of casual observer of U.S. policy would have automatically said, no, that's, Mm. (laughs) that's absurd. There is absolutely no plan to do so. But within the sort of Beijing ecosystem of information, This gained a lot of currency. And so fortunately, in that situation, U.S. officials were able to help preempt any sort of escalation because they picked up on this. But at the time, there was not many channels of dialogue, actually. They, they did sort of, this is the controversy around Millie, right, calling his mm. Chinese counterparts. I don't know. That, that was in the news a lot. But so, mm. so the, it was the U.S. side that noticed this risk and used existing defense communication channels to convey directly to Chinese senior defense officials that, in fact, there was no intention, no attack was planned or was underway. So this was an example in which the U.S. was able to head off 
uh, just a total misreading of their intentions. But it also illustrates the intensifying risks and the possibility that Beijing could really misread the U.S. So aside from that, I think a different set of risks is the risk of an unintended collision at sea or in the air, because there is simply an increase in military presence and operations in close proximity in and around the first island chain. So the chance of a collision is low, but ever present. And Mm. if a collision were to occur, particularly in contested areas where the two sides have different understandings of their rights and their obligations under international law. So here, South China Sea would be a key area where the two sides have very different understandings of international law. Should an incident occur during a freedom of navigation operation, tensions can ratchet up very quickly. And because we are living in this current environment where both sides are in competition mode and inclined towards zero-sum thinking, Mm. tendency will be to perceive hostile motives on the other side once an incident happens. And once an incident is made public, officials on both sides will also come under domestic pressures to take tough public stances, to show resolve, which then reduces the space for private accommodation and sort of negotiating an off-ramp. So, you know, the the likelihood from these sorts of scenarios of a full-scale conflict is low, but I think we do have to be aware that these risks exist. Mm. That's really interesting, Uh, particularly the unintended nature of it, you know, an accident of some sort. Whilst two heads of the military might be able to explain it and say, all good. But I think the interesting piece you just said there is the then domestic audience, because we have to remember that on both, on all sides, there are hawks who express nationalistic sentiment and will put pressure on the domestic leaders for their own political gain, right? So if, you know, say Biden is perceived as not doing enough, he will be criticized. I suspect something similar occurs in China as well. In fact, maybe that's a neat way to, again, go to Taiwan, because I think we saw that Mm. with Nancy Pelosi's visit. We saw really the kind of wrenching up of nationalistic rhetoric in China, What do you think about that? Yeah, no, definitely. I think so. I I think the sort of domestic politics cut in both directions when we think about how it affects Beijing's stance on Taiwan. So definitely there is a lot of hardline nationalist views in China, which the leadership has helped to build up by the way, through their domestic propaganda efforts, right? Mm. So Mm. part of this is manufactured by constantly elevating the importance of unification with Taiwan, right? Uh, And Xi Jinping has reduced political space on this for himself by saying that that goal we were talking about, national rejuvenation by Mm -hmm. 2049, he is linking that directly to unification with Taiwan. So that's really um, in an explicit way attaching more importance to unification with Taiwan, because now you're saying that our rejuvenation is conditioned on our ability to unify with Taiwan. So our rise to great power status, right, is conditioned mm. on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So so there's he, he's leaving very little domestic political space to sort of back down from that going yeah. forward. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. And I think it's just to pick up again another point there, because and I probably you're probably referring to the recently published white paper 
But the term they, they don't actually use unification, if I'm correct, it's reunification. Yes. Which that's is right. a vastly different picture that's being put out there. So I find that really interesting that, you know, that's the kind of, if we want to call it a red line, that's a very clear red line and a necessary part of China's future by 2049. Yeah. You know, so, so it's, it's interesting you raise that. So, and I think there that points to, if I can get into something slightly Please, different, yeah. but, you know, that points to really this increasingly divergent understandings across the strait. So let's set the U.S. aside for mm-hmm. a second, mm-hmm. but between Taiwan and China. So um, I really love um, recently a, a, a sort of Taiwan expert, veteran expert, Shelley Rigger. She put it this way in, in a New Yorker piece recently. So for, for some, unification is getting back together after divorce for mm. others, Taiwan and China were never married in the first place. So, and so that points to the sort of words that are used as well. Mm. So for the Chinese, we're getting back together, right? Mm. Um, but Whether you like it or not. <laughs> uh, well, oh, yes, right, that's right. Um, uh, you know, I can do it the easy way or I can yeah, make it hard right. for you, yeah, right? you're coming home, honey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's... Exactly. Yeah, when yeah. put in those terms, it sounds even more abusive, right? Yeah, so, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but but so but it, the, one of the issues now, right? Because we can also sort of look at the overall Taiwan situation as a sort of a, a struggle between the three key parties as to what the status quo should be. So each mm, has their mm. preferred status quo, and they're not happy to see it changing right now and shifting in different ways. And so for the Taiwanese, the shift there has been that there are changing attitudes, really, amongst the youth, uh, the Taiwanese youth. So a survey done earlier this year showed that only 2.4% polled identified as only Chinese, And 62.7% as only Taiwanese. And so, you know, that point. And just for context, how different is that mm, from previous previous polls? Is that a a vast difference? It it is a significant change. I don't have the numbers from Mm -hmm, previous mm -hmm, polls, mm -hmm. but it's definitely a, a change. And so, what that points to is this really the increasing irrelevance of of China to Mm. Taiwanese youth. China period, you know, to talk his youth. But if we're going to get into the specifics mm. of the one country, two systems solution that China is holding fast onto as their, you know, mm. political solution for Taiwan, which we've seen how it played out in Hong Kong, right? Mm. And so, you know, this shift in identity, mm. the sort of lack of credibility of what China is offering, all of that points to the sort of divergence between the two sides of the strait that really makes peaceful unification more challenging mm. for Beijing. And, you know, they see this as well. Which is, I guess, the reason for the rhetoric. You know, we'd, we'd like to do it peacefully, but stand ready to use our full military might to reunify. That's a, it's a, I find that so fascinating because there's so much psychology in here that's kind of deeply infused with the kind of idea of nationhood and nation state and from all parties in, in, in many ways, I guess Taiwan really sees itself as an independent nation. You know, most of the world, certainly all the global powers, 
still accept the one China policy. And that is the, to use the term, status quo. Yes. But if an uninformed observer was watching from the side, they would consider Taiwan as an independent nation. Maybe you can just give us some background context as to what the status quo, I guess, is and how that's sure. changing and what are the tensions that exist within this, how Taiwan is actually viewed by the rest of the world or m- much of the rest of the world. Right. So this will require a, a tiny bit of history to sort of outline what the what the status quo as understood recently is. When the U.S. and China normalized relations in 1979, the U.S. ended its official relationship with Taiwan. And after that, well, a key part of relations resuming was finding a way to accommodate both sides' concerns over Taiwan. And so what emerged was the one China policy for Mm. the U.S., which recognizes that the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is China's sole legal government but only acknowledges the position of the PRC that Taiwan is a part of the PRC. Right. And the, it does right. not recognize okay. this position. Uh, and again, this language choice of words. Yeah, okay, good. These little things are <laughs> yeah, extremely critical. important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, and this choice of words and the distinction it implies was intentional. That was the intention, right, hmm. of diplomats back in 1979. And so, and, and at the same time, uh, you know, as part of a series of communiques that led to the resumption of relations, Washington also stated at that time that it has no intention of pursuing a one China, one Taiwan policy. Okay? Mm. And I say this because that's important for our understanding of the Biden administration's position now. So just to add to that, though, you know, this wasn't the only piece of it. So those were the commitments that Washington made to China. Mm. about Taiwan. But Washington also made commitments to Taipei. So in 1979, Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, which basically establishes the framework for the continuation of unofficial relations right, between Washington and Taipei. Mm. And the act basically says that any effort to determine the future of Taiwan through non-peaceful means would be considered a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific and of grave concern to the U.S. And to that end, authorizes the U.S. government to provide Taiwan with defensive arms and to also maintain the capacity of the U.S. itself to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that could jeopardize the security of Taiwan or the social or economic system of the people on Taiwan. So there was a sort of balancing act from the start where Washington was looking both ways and made commitments to both sides. Okay. Mm. And so these understandings, if you know, they're not totally overlapping. I mean, they're not totally convergent, right? Mm, They mm, overlap, mm. but they're not totally convergent. Mm. And that was fine for a time because there was enough ambiguity that, you know, all sides can sort of say that they got, you know, what they wanted. And but now sort of China wasn't a threat, right? And Chinese capabilities weren't what they are today. So and increasingly under the stress of competition, these changes to the status quo are seen as more threatening by all sides. And so those changes, as you say, the key change on the Chinese side is that their military capabilities have advanced so much that the use of force to compel unification, while not yet viable, 
is becoming more viable. And not only that, but we talked about this before, their intentions simply appear more assertive and aggressive. Mm. And so on Taiwan specifically, right, Beijing has done a very good job of diplomatically isolating Taipei. They've since 2016 peeled away eight countries that had previously recognized Taiwan. They've blocked Taipei's participation in international organizations. It's tightened its understanding of the 92 consensus, which is a cross-strait consensus. We can talk about that more in a bit mm-hmm. if you're interested. And mm-hmm. there has been an uptick in military coercion, right? Nearly daily sort of intrusions of Taiwan's air defense identification zone by mm. PLA aircraft, and now crossings of the median line post Pelosi. We can get into that as well. But so all of this for Washington, you know, they've begun to see one that the odds of a military invasion of Taiwan as becoming too high. And because for Washington, the expectation has always been that Taiwan's status should be resolved through peaceful means that are non-unilateral, right? So Washington feels that it's catching up, really, to events. Mm, mm. Uh, And so there's the sense of urgency that it has to take actions to deter additional aggressive Chinese action. We have to stop it here, right, is the sort of attitude coming out of Washington. And so that's prompted this sort of a flurry of actions that started under Trump, but really has been more substantive under the Biden administration. So now the U.S. is using language and taking actions that elevate Taiwan's political status. You know, Washington calls Taiwan a key U.S. partner, and is constantly saying our commitments to Taiwan are rock solid. Mm. It's really internationalized the Taiwan issue. It's it's ensured that Taiwan is mentioned in G7 statements. Um, This is the first time that that's happened. In 2021, this is the first time a G7 statement referenced Mm. the Taiwan Strait. You know, regional governments are increasingly concerned as well. And that's not all... That shouldn't all be credited to Washington. That should be credited to China, to Beijing as well, because regional governments are also worried now about what China is doing. Right. But, you know, we've seen bilateral cooperation increase. We've seen an added sense of urgency, particularly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine to bolster Taiwan's defense. But, But the final piece of it, I think, that is really important and going back to what we were saying before about the U.S. committing to China that it had no intention of pursuing a one China, one Taiwan policy. I think what's notable is that some of the rhetoric coming out of the Biden administration is implying that Washington would, for now at least, prefer for Taiwan to remain de facto autonomous from China. And so that represents a shift in the level of strategic importance that the U.S. is attaching to Taiwan. And so for Beijing, you know, this is all very worrisome. They see Washington as playing, they would say, playing the Taiwan card as a pressure point in the larger competition. And they see U.S. actions and rhetoric as hollowing out some of those commitments that the U.S. had previously made Mm. and continues to say that they uphold to China. And it's concerned that Washington's goal now, preferred end goal, is to maintain, to ensure that Taiwan remains separated from China in perpetuity. So that would be right, quite a shift from the status quo. Right. And, but isn't China then also doing the same thing by explicitly stating that by 2049, they will achieve reunification? So again, we're, we're kind of left in this conundrum where 
ultimately both sides are drawing a red line across, you know, a poor island that <laughs> it seems is quite clear as to what it wants and what its people want, but is effectively a, a almost a chess piece on a geopolitical chessboard. Absolutely, yeah. Why is Taiwan so important to China? What is it about Taiwan that is so deeply, uh, that, that is potentially leading to an all-out war with the U.S.? So, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with with history. Uh, we can we can get into it a, a little bit, but I don't want to mm. take up too much time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With, with the history. But after the Qing dynasty, there were sort of two key political groups that emerged. It was the nationalist parties or the Kuomintang or the KMT, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which, which saw the future of China as a constitutional republic as the Republic of China. And then there was the Chinese Communist Party, which envisioned a socialist China you know, mm. based on um, the principles of Marxism-Leninism. So the two mm. sides fought in a civil war throughout World War II. Uh, there was a moment when they cooperated to fight the Japanese, but for the most part, they were fighting with each other as well. And so in 49, the, the CCP established the People's Republic of China with Beijing as its capital, the KMT under Chiang Kai-shek retreated to Taiwan and, you know, said that the capital of the Republic of China, you know, was in Taipei. And so for a time, both sides claimed to be effectively the rulers of China. And Hmm. the KMT sought to reclaim mainland China from its base in Taipei. Of course, this never happened. And and Taiwan's leaders today no longer harbor such grand ambitions, right? And like I said, you know, this piece of history is increasingly sort of irrelevant to Mm. the Taiwanese population, right? Mm, And so mm. the fact that this civil war was never really concluded, the view that there is this one China, only one China in the world consisting of people on both sides of the strait, and that Taiwan has always belonged to China are, are some of the reasons why Beijing sees what they call reunification with Taiwan as priority. But I think not only that, increasingly, by tying it to national rejuvenation, Beijing is really attaching greater strategic importance to Taiwan that has very little to do with the historical or cultural reasons to reunify. That really is, I think, more reflective of Taiwan's geographical position. Mm. You know, Beijing has long wanted to break through what it sees as a hostile sort of chain of islands that lie between its eastern coastline and the Pacific. This is the first island chain. And so it runs from Japan down to the Philippines into the South China Sea. And all of these countries are really, you know, are the sovereign territories of uh, allies and partners to the U.S., Mm. right? And so that's why China has always viewed this uh, first island chain as a hostile fortification that it had to break through. And so taking Taiwan to put it very simply, allows Beijing to break through this chain and to project power from, you know, what some people like to term a a, a sort of aircraft carrier that can never be sort of... um, Mm. A permanently (laughs) fixed one, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, a permanent Mm. sort of aircraft carrier, Mm. right? Mm. And of course, this is also part of the reason why the U.S. attaches strategic importance to Taiwan as well, by virtue of its geographic it's unfortunate or fortunate geographic position. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's an important aspect because the amount of – and of course, it features quite often uh, as to the motivations why, but it's uh, often below the narrative of kind of this idea of values, uh, you know, that uh, for the yes. freedom and liberty of, 
the Taiwanese people. But it's uh, really, there's also, uh, I, I won't know the figures off the top of my head, but a significant portion of global trade goes through these waters, uh, right? Yes, also. Yes, yeah. exactly. So given, and you made a mention about the, uh, about the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, given the two scenarios in, resemble in some sense, both because of these kind of cultural ties or how one nation views the other, what's the impact you think on the ongoing invasion and perhaps, as we're seeing right now, the backsliding of the Russian efforts on Beijing? Um, so one, Beijing is absolutely watching the situation mm. in Ukraine very closely. And, you know, part of that has to do with the fact that she and Putin had signed up to this, what they call the no limits partnership, mm. right? Mm. On the eve of the <laughs> invasion. Yeah. Um, and Russia's setbacks on the battlefield has likely prompted a lot of reflection amongst Chinese military planners. For the PLA, their goal in a Taiwan military contingency has always to achieve victory decisively and swiftly. They do not want to be bogged down in a protracted war. So I think some of the lessons that that China is drawing include one, the importance of strengthening their nuclear capabilities. So what they're seeing is that the U.S. has not directly intervened in the Ukraine-Russia war because it doesn't want to go to war with a nuclear power. And so for the Chinese, this is a key lesson learned. Mm. The second one is that information warfare is key. The Ukrainian government has been extremely effective with shaping the narrative around mm. this war. And so I think this was part of the sort of military plans for Taiwan anyways. But to emphasize, I think for them, it emphasized the importance of cutting information flows to and from Taiwan at the very beginning of an invasion. Mm. So that would mean hitting submarine cables and cyber attacks right, mm. on telecommunication companies. So uh, controlling the narrative mm. from the start. Uh, and also, you know, this would have uh, impact on, on the support that Taiwan would receive from the U.S. and potentially Japan uh, if information flows are disrupted. Well, so you mean because of, it, of the delay? Is that what you mean? Because of the delay yeah, just, in, in the kind of call for help? Yeah, just or just the sharing of, you know, timely information as to what is right. happening. And on the economic front, um, following what happened, there was a lot of discussion, at least in the academic sphere, about the need for China to reduce their dependency on the dollar, you know, how to sort of diversify that dependency, you know, maybe moving more towards the euro, maybe moving more towards digital currencies. There was a lot of discussion around that. And so, you know, this points to a lot of thinking internally about how China would weather potential economic sanctions Mm. in a Taiwan invasion. There's growing concern over NATO's role, not only in Europe, but also in Asia as well. So, Um, We saw that uh, Japan and South Korea uh, attended the last meeting in NATO. And so this certainly caught Mm. the eye of the Chinese. Mm. 
And I would add, this is something that I think is less discussed, but is at the top of my mind because I was just in Tokyo. But the way in which the Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed threat perceptions in China's immediate neighborhood. So, for instance, in Japan, the war has apparently prompted a, a shift in domestic sentiment uh, amongst just average people, but also amongst lawmakers as well, uh, mm. tilting them more in favor of uh, an increase in Japan's defense budget and support for Japan developing uh, long-range missile strike capabilities. Mm. So mm. there's this sort of effect. Um, it, it's made, I think, the prospect of war much more concrete for uh, some populations that live around China. <laughs> mm. and, that, and that's a pretty big step for Japan as well, right? Because it is a complete shift in their own kind of self-defense posture. And, and, you know, a country that has been deeply rooted in pacifism hmm. post-World War II, I think it does represent how much more seriously the domestic population is considering the potential for war, but more specifically, one that would arise from China hmm. or involving China. And so there's a lot more thinking now, it seems, around uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in Japan as well. Right. Right. So I guess the so so, so it's a double-edged sword. I guess the Russian invasion of Ukraine, both because it, in some sense, sends a very clear signal that taking a people is not as easy as one might perceive it, particularly when you have a wet gap to cross, which would make it exponentially more difficult for China than it is for Russia with a massive land border with Ukraine. But then on the other side, there are some critical lessons. Uh, it's almost like the test run right. for right. Beijing. Right. Let's see that's where right. you make your mistakes. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I also wouldn't mind uh, pivoting to some more optimistic discussions. And you did oh, make gosh. the point yeah, if if uh-huh. there if there is a uh, a silver lining to any of this, because you did talk about the kind of deter and assure, and you said that there's work to be done here. So, what exists currently as kind of checks and balances or crisis communication, and what are some of those things that can be done and are being done? to build this assurance between the two? It's really, really hard. Let me just start off with that. Mm. I think, you know, some of it has to do with what we were discussing before. Just there needs to be more thinking about what does coexistence with China look like? Very serious long-term thinking and a clear vision from uh, the U.S. and its partners and Ideally, this would be something that the U.S. also discusses with its partners and allies, Mm. you know. So while you're discussing how to upgrade military capabilities and working on that together, it would be useful for them to also discuss what their vision for coexisting with China really looks like concretely going forward. But on a sort of more practical, you know, level, there is a silver lining, at least specifically around Taiwan, as funny as it might sound. I think in the short term, none of the key parties want a war. Mm. I think that's pretty clear. China's not interested in a war in the short term. Um, you know, it's not ready for one. Um, and it's it would come at tremendous political risk 
right now for them. So it's not the right timing um, mm -hmm. for China. And so to that extent, you know, the three parties are more or less aligned right now and nobody wants a war. And so that has meant that there has been a degree of restraint that is evident by both on the part of both Washington and Beijing. So following Pelosi's visit or uh, yeah, following Pelosi's visit, you know, the way that the Chinese con conducted their military exercises Yes, it was escalatory, but it was very much controlled. Mm. Um, and the way that the U.S. responded to it, they were very clear in their signaling. You know, they said, we are not going to send an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait. We will be sending something, but it's not going to be an aircraft carrier. And then days later, they sent two, two vessels through, right? So this is good, right? This is exactly how the two sides should be signaling to each other to lower the temperature. Mm. But uh, of course, more can be done. I think one is... Both militaries need to be ordered to be acting with the utmost restraint in continued operations going forward. There's simply going to be more military interactions mm. in the Taiwan Strait and around Taiwan, period. And so the potential, even with everyone being restrained, human error can always occur. So mm. this is something that all three militaries should take to heart. Crisis communications channels still exist between the U.S. and China. They don't exist between China and Taiwan. Um, and so this is something that the two sides should seriously think about establishing, though it's very hard to see progress on that in the current mm. uh, political environment. On, on U.S.-China mechanisms, of course, the Chinese, as part of their retaliation for Pelosi's visit, actually um, canceled a number of defense dialogues that were meant for you know, risk reduction and preventing incidents. So that was not a positive sign, but it was, it was not entirely unexpected. The Chinese tend to, at moments of high political tensions, they tend to cut off Hmm. military and defense dialogues because they see them as expendable, unfortunately, and an easy way of telling the U.S. that they're opposed to whatever the U.S. has hmm. done on the political hmm. front, right? Hmm. And so this is a thing that the PLA has done for, for decades. So it's hmm. not surprising, but it's not constructive yeah. um, at all. But, you know, nevertheless, there are lines of communication that exist. So uh, but we also heard, you know, around the Pelosi visit that the Chinese weren't picking up the phone for hmm. some of these communications channels. So so there's a lot of work that can be done. I think, you know, uh, Beijing should be encouraged to to utilize those communications channels and to pick up the phone and, and to return those dialogues uh, to, to return to to resuming those dialogues. I think beyond that, the sort of assurance piece of it. So the Biden administration has in each meeting between Biden and Xi made clear that their policy on Taiwan has not changed, mm. that they are not changing the status quo, that they're upholding the one China policy, and that they are not supportive of Taiwan's independence. All of that needs to continue, this sort of just affirmation of those statements. But as I alluded to before, those statements are losing credibility mm. in the eyes of Beijing. And so this is the challenge. What else <laughs> right now can help to assure Beijing? I mean, 
you know, the U.S. should continue to say that our goal is to coexist with you, um, that we're not trying to undermine the regime. All of that is also important. But to what extent that will assure Beijing? Um, well, I mean, they should continue mm. to say it, but they should also, I'm sure the Biden administration is well aware of the limitations of those words. Of the rhetoric. But I guess the only thing left here is dialogue. And I, and I, I mean, this is going to sound awfully naive in this current moment, because neither Washington nor Beijing are particularly interested in hmm. dialogue now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which I find absolutely fascinating. I mean, it really is, at a global scale, it's schoolyard emotional immaturity, which is why we we can comfortably say that there is nothing rational about war. It's emotional, it's human. And which is why I think your warning of an accident are so relevant, because it is emotional. It is so emotionally loaded. And with all the pressures and all the tensions, both domestic and external, you can absolutely see how the emotional immaturity of oftentimes all the parties involved can lead us down a path where we really don't, you know, we can't back out of, where we, you know, where we sleepwalk into, into war, to use a, a phrase attached to the First World War. Um, given Taiwan's expression of its own identity, is there a peaceful path to a Taiwanese independence, given everything you've said so far and the distinct assertion by Beijing that 2049 reunification will occur, is there a peaceful way that Taiwan becomes an independent nation? So the, the current Thai administration's position is that Taiwan is already a de facto sovereign nation. And so, therefore, it does not need to declare mm. formal independence, mm -hmm. which is interesting, mm. right? And and smart in mm, a lot exactly. of ways mm. because because she's saying we don't need to do that. The likelihood of that, I think, is extremely low. I think polls, and I don't have the specific numbers, but polls have consistently shown that the Taiwanese population, the majority of people here want to maintain the status quo. Mm. It's a difficult status quo for Taiwan, but they would prefer that over getting into a war with China. So I don't think that there is, at the moment, much appetite for any formal declaration of mm. independence. That could, of course, change because of shifts in generational attitudes towards China, as mm. we talked about. So who knows what will happen in you know, the next decade or mm. so in terms the lead of up to 20, yeah, yeah, 2049, yeah. Um, what do the Chinese demographics, uh, aging population, etc., how do you see that play into the next 20 or so years? Some are calling it a, a, as the greatest disparity in its, you know, aging population and much of it due to the One China policy and that that is potentially why someone like Xi might look to do something now while he has a lot of young people, young, especially young men, to throw at a potential conflict rather than waiting you know, another 10, 15, 20 years when those young men now are you know, middle-aged men uh, and, sure. you know, like myself, not keen to go to war. Sure. I, I guess two sort of thoughts come to mind. So one is that China is not the only country facing a demographic problem. So the Taiwanese also have mm. a demographic problem. So if they were looking 
in terms of relativity that might reduce some of their anxieties around that, right? right? And we didn't touch upon Taiwan's defense, but, you know, the short of it is they do have some personal issues for their military. And part of it is because of demographic problems. So, but the but maybe the more important point is that and, and this is something that we didn't cover that I do think is rather important. You know, obviously, there's a lot of talk these days about what would trigger Xi to make a move on mm. Taiwan. Mm. I think it's important when folks think about it and discuss it to remember that it remains a fundamentally political decision. So it's not that if tomorrow the PLA developed all the capabilities that it needed you know, all the sort of amphibious lift capabilities it needed to ferry across all the soldiers and equipment that it needed to successfully carry out an invasion that they would immediately do so. Mm. That's not the sort of key factor. Two, the Chinese have never declared a timeline. Now there's an implied timeline of 2049, which actually is not too far away mm -hmm. if you think about it. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they there's not a sort of the timeline framing I think is quite a Western thing, but also it's, we talked about this before, I think it's also useful for Washington to focus the bureaucracy, but I don't think that's how the Chinese approach uh, this issue. You know, it's, it's a political question. And so not only do they not have the military capabilities, but the strategic environment right now is not great for an invasion, if you mm. think about it, you know, mm -hmm. and if you think from their perspective that there's still time and that they can wait for a better moment. And that strategic environment, we talked about it was a, it's a fairly confrontational US that is talking about Taiwan all day, every day, right? It's the Pentagon that's mm. called Taiwan their pacing contingency on top of China being their pacing challenge, mm. right? So, uh, and it's at a time when not just the US, but Europe and you know Japan and Australia are also beginning to think quite seriously about a Taiwan contingency. And, and this, you know, it feels like a moment when democracies really are going to war with autocracies, right? So, you know, it's just not particularly a good time to make a move, I think, from that perspective either. So just to emphasize that, because I think there's just so much speculation around that mm. right now. And I think the wrong assessment or an overly confident assessment that pins an invasion to a particular year will, of course, have ramifications for policymaking by all the relevant actors. Of course. I think on that note, Amanda, I feel like we could speak all day about this because there are so many threads to pick and unpick on this. But uh, I think I'll let you go because you've also been traveling and uh, in COVID isolation at home. Thank you very much for giving me so much of your time. It's been absolutely insightful. And I also want to thank you for the work that you're doing in trying to raise awareness across all the interested relevant stakeholders as part of your work with, uh, with Crisis Group. I think it's absolutely critical work that we increase our mutual understanding of what is motivating uh, each of the sides. So thank you very much again for giving me so much of your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.